Hey, Shakes Pals! Welcome to our first interlude episode. In between each season, we'll be having a chat about different film and stage adaptations through the years. This week, we have Professor Kelly Aliano with us to talk about Hamlet. And I'm going to be honest, when she asked that we do that as a topic, I screamed a little bit. Well, I screamed a lot, but that's besides the point. Um, We've got a couple announcements before we get there. First of all, I am so excited to announce that we are now part of the Serious Business Podcast Network, along with getting to work alongside some really incredible shows like Adventure Incorporated, which is an actual play D&D podcast that I'm also on, and Ask the Pokedexpert, a very serious, very informational show about Pokemon featuring Mike from our first episode, we are thrilled to be starting a monthly stream on Twitch. We'll be examining the idea of type in Shakespeare, what makes a lover, a clown, a villain, a soldier, besides the body type and gender expectations that casting has set in the past. If you are interested in being part of that roundtable experience over the next few months, check out the Google form in the show notes or on our Facebook page at facebook.com p2mpod or check us out on Twitter at p2mpod. Um, we are so excited for this week's episodes, but we are going to dive right into it. And as always, if you enjoy, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. Welcome to Protest Too Much, a Shakespeare showdown podcast where a guest and I go head to head each week and you get to decide who wins. Okay, so this week we are talking Hamlet film adaptations, and I am so excited. We've got Kelly Eliano here. She is a scholar and professor, and Kelly, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Kelly. Um, I teach at Long Island University's Post Campus in the Department of Theater, Dance, and Arts Management, and uh, I'm a scholar who does work in queer theater and video game studies and uh, writing pedagogy. That's amazing. Those all sound like things that I would be interested in. <laughs> awesome. Come take a class. <laughs> Honestly, you, I, all I want to do is go back to school. So that's, that's an easy sell for me. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, okay. So we are talking about Hamlet adaptations today. And this is something that I have, I've watched a lot of Hamlet's. One of my grad school classes was just Hamlet. That's all it was. Wow. Really? Yes, uh, it was amazing. We watched a bunch of film adaptations. Uh, we read a bunch of different like uh, spin-off texts, and it's been especially teaching high school. After that, it's been a lot of yeah. discovering what works for who. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'll let you start. Uh, if you have any favorites or you have any kind of general thoughts on adaptations in general, and want to throw them out there. So the point that you raised there about um, studying this with high school students actually kind of correlates with how this activity got started for me in my own courses, working with students in intro to drama where Hamlet's kind of a go-to text, right? If you're gonna have a Shakespeare, that's the Shakespeare you're probably gonna have. And looking at the ways in which um, Hamlet has been used across time to kind of speak to the concerns of that particular moment. And it's really interesting when you think about the question of adaptation, because what I've discovered over the 10 or so years I've been teaching college is that we use this word adaptation, but there are versions that are clearly 
adapted. And then there are versions that are really more in some ways translated, like put into the language of the historical moment in which they're being presented, like off the Hamlet topic, but obviously the clearest one um, for folks in my age bracket is the Baz Luhrmann Romeo plus Juliet, right? It was the lexicon of the 90s to present that particular story. And I raise that point because, you know, sort of the foundational Hamlet to look at with undergrads, especially non-majors who maybe don't know about the history of acting is the Laurence Olivier film, because Olivier for so long was considered a, a gold standard, right, of acting in the realistic method. And my experience has been that students do not connect to that version at all. It feels artificial, the zoom in on the back of his head, they kind of giggle at. Yep because it feels so literal that it's corny. Um, yeah. And I, I really can't, I, I really have struggled to sell uh, undergrads on that version. I'm curious if you show that to high schoolers and what they make of it. I don't, oh. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even bother. Um, I think that there's uh, the idea of realism in historical context is so fascinating to me because yeah. you look at, um, we did Olivier and Brana's Henry V side by side in one of mm -hmm. my, cause I did a, one of my other courses was Shakespeare on film. So. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we looked at those side by side and it was just wild to see how, you know, real in air quotes changed because when we watched Bran, it was like, this was real for the time. And even moving forward, what is real, what's considered real on screen now is so different than what was considered real on screen 100 years ago. And I think even between Brana, which was mid 90s, right? And now there's a big difference in what we think of as realistic. I, I was in high school when I first saw the Kenneth Brana. That was our Hamlet unit. We just watched it for however many days it took for to eight watch. days. Yeah, to watch the two VHSs that made Hamlet um, in, in the, the 90s. 90s. It was Titanic yep. and Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. <laughs> and and those were the box. two. <laughs> Yep. Um, and, you know, this, the to be or not to be speech, which is usually what I excerpt for students, that was so groundbreaking because Brana's version makes it so clear that he knows they're behind the glass, right? It's a right. two-way mirror and they're watching him and he knows they're there and he so directly engages them with the dagger, with his, uh, with his gaze. And wow, how revolutionary, right? Showing us that Hamlet is actually the manipulator of what's happening. And it's interesting to look at that um, against two of the more contemporary, though I know um, they, they're probably starting to date even as well, but David Tennant and Benedict Cumberbatch, the To Be or Not To Be's are both on YouTube. And I was really moved by David Tennant's when I saw it. Um, I, I'm a Doctor Who fan, so I came to it perhaps predisposed to love it. Yep. And I was surprised about four or five years ago, I showed it in an intro to drama of majors that time. Um, and they didn't resonate with it as much as I anticipated. Um, whereas I, I found that Benedict Cumberbatch generally students do gravitate towards that it has this sense of feeling realistic in the way that, uh, we might define realism now. I, I think that this is again, probably off topic, but I think the whole concept of realism is complicated for our postmodern contemporary moment because of what the absurdists did. Now there's this degree to which the existential crisis is 
realistic. And, and for me, at least as a viewer, I think Tennant and Cumberbatch both embody that. I think perhaps what's easier for young folks about Cumberbatch is, is it still has trappings of the other kind of realism, that he's in the scene, that he's this character um, in the costume and so forth, whereas Tennant's because he's in neutral dress and just sort of longingly looking at the camera um, is perhaps maybe too abstracted for what the expectations are um, maybe in terms of motivation or objective for the character. Sure. I'm not sure um, because I think it's a great version. Um, and I'm, I've, I've, been, uh, I've been surprised when, when I've had students who are like, no, I don't care much for that one. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so I will say David Tennant is my favorite Hamlet yeah. on film. I don't think the whole film is my favorite film adaptation, but I think that David Tennant is... I don't think I know. Yeah, fair. <laughs> David Tennant is my yeah. Um, fight me, y'all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> totally fair. <laughs> but I just think so. I think that everything that I love about his his Hamlet is wrapped up in that moment because for me, it's tight mm -hmm. on his face and it is he is he. It's tight on his face, but he's disconnected from the camera in a way that I think a stage actor, only a stage actor on camera can do, right. um, which is know that the camera's there and ignore it at the same time. And there's just, it feels to me like we are imposing on this moment of his, that mm. we have stumbled on it and we're watching it in close up and we can see, like I can see into his brain. And again, I think that that's a lot of me loving David Tennant in anything and everything he does I just love but yeah. it's such a personal moment where I felt I felt Benedict Benedict Cumberbatch's was more put on and mm. acted mm. which in the context of the scene I also get responding positively to because it is uh in that you know overheard way or in that uh feigned madness way like you can definitely justify that and I think ultimately that point maybe comes down to what each individual viewer has decided the purpose of to be or not to be is. I think in the Olivier era, for example, it was so definitively he is contemplating suicide, right? right. And for Brana, it's so definitively, no, he's manipulating the threads of this, you know, this complex plot of how to take down his uncle that I think for me, what's rich about what David Tennant is giving there is that it's a little bit in the eye of the beholder. He's just mm -hmm. talking to you, like you're watching him think it out. And it's so direct and it's so immediate on the face that you as the viewer kind of have to connect with what he's saying and make your own assumptions about why and how he's using that language. Um, whereas maybe, I, I would say generally to the to Cumberbatch, I, I feel that way about his acting generally. It's very actorly. Um, I also play, when we do romanticism, his reading of John Keats's Ode, on an Ode, Ode to a Nightingale. And there's a similar cadence and quality. If you've never played it on YouTube, yeah. go no, listen I'm, to it. Right um, <laughs> it's, it's just beautiful. But there's a similar, like, there's a similar quality in that for me, both of them are a a man like a, a man with a great presence a great voice reading great poetic language and it's clear that as the reader he knows what he's talking about and he's made meaning out of it but it's maybe uh the to be or not to be or not to be is maybe less immediate than yeah. tenants which is so to for me at least to us in the audience he is talking 
to you. And when I think about Hamlet as a play, I think those are the versions when I've seen it on stage that really work for me, similarly to Richard III. We sort of have to be on Hamlet's side. We have to be on Richard III's side because what they're proposing to do is murder, right? Hamlet's going to kill his uncle and we have to be on board with yeah, it's him. It's the same with Iago. Like right. He is we are as an audience member we are complicit in everything that happens in these plays once they tell us exactly what they're going to do and that's what i love about those moments so much is that it's on us you know (laughs) yeah yeah i i agree with that and i think um i i saw a version of it this goes back oh maybe 10 12 years like just in a random really large open room in manhattan and like they were just like school chairs and they were like we're not going to take an intermission you take an intermission when you feel like it if you feel like it um and it worked at first i was like oh my gosh three and a half hours without a bathroom break like i I don't know (laughs) yeah i don't know folks i didn't get up because there was something about that environmental quality that worked for exactly what you're talking about. Like, I'm in this, you've taken me on this journey and I have to see through what you're going to accomplish at the end, even though obviously I already knew the end when I saw it. And that was sort of a project for me was seeing different versions of Hamlet um, because I, so the first live one I like, remember seeing as an adult taking myself to see was the Wooster group which is a totally reimagined version do you know what the Wooster group one I don't again YouTube recommendation yep. um, basically there was a film version with Richard Burton that they did in the 1950s and the concept behind it was that it would be a film but it would operate ephemerally like theater. So it would be released to cinemas nationwide for a certain limited engagement, and then it wasn't to be shown again. So a complete version of this film has been very difficult to find. And the Wooster Group collected like as complete a version as they could. And it runs in the background with all, because film deteriorates if it's not um, restored, right? So with all the imperfections, the weird cuts and the stuff that's blurred out and the stuff that's missing, and the company played in front of this film. So they're not doing Hamlet, they're doing Richard Burton's film version of Hamlet, while simultaneously they had cameras on them creating a feedback loop live in real time (laughs) of their Hamlet playing Hamlet off of this film. And then from time to time they cut to other versions. Like I remember them showing, the Polonius from, I think it's Bill Murray, right? From the Hamlet 2000. Yeah, which I'm also the right age to have thought was amazing. And this is a blockbuster video in the action section. Oh, that's so clever, whoa. (laughs) Um, Which again, students now are a little bit like, wow, 2000. And I'm like, look, that's what we thought was great when I was 16. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I loved, 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 loved. And you know what? I think even looking back on it retrospectively, I think Ethan Hawke is a better Hamlet in that film than he maybe should have been. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And that whole emo quality, I mean, that's- That's That's Hamlet. Hamlet. Yeah, that's who he is. Um, So, you know, Worcester Group really put it in this language of technology and the postmodern and what does it mean 
to be ephemeral. And I, I, you know, that stuck with me. I saw that in 06. And then I just wanted, I was like, well, what if you took all that stuff away? Like, what is Hamlet like then? So I started seeking out things like this environmental, you know, large space production. I saw Titan theaters um, in Queens, which was really interesting. They had um, a female identified performer playing Hamlet and drew no attention to it. It was not that, ooh, look what happens when a woman plays Hamlet. See, I it love that. Just, that's- Yeah, it, it was every, just the like, performance. Oh, that's, that's what I want more of. And um, I don't know if you're familiar right now, there's a group called The Show Must Go Online. Yes. And they're yes. doing, yeah. Uh, and their Hamlet, it was a woman played Hamlet and yeah. she was incredible. And it wasn't a deal. It wasn't a, a thing. It was just playing the character. And they've done that a lot with a lot of their shows. And- that's what I want. That's yeah. what I want more of. Um, I totally agree with you. That that really appeals to me because I think, you know, in many ways I can imagine, I'm not an actor by trade, but I can imagine that Hamlet is just one of those parts that as an actor, you kind of want to prove even just to yourself that you sure. can do, that you can make your own in some meaningful way. And I think limiting that to male identified performers is silly when mm -hmm. that's really, the play is really not about his journey as a boy or a man in any significant way. It's about someone coming to grips with, um, you know, this question of whether or not to take vengeance. And therefore, I don't think the gender necessarily uh, has bearing on that. Yeah, no, I am, I, all on board there. Um, I do, speaking of gender, yeah. uh, I don't know if you've seen the Asta Nielsen 1920s uh, Danish silent film not recently so a fascinating take on Hamlet and like on a female identifying Hamlet because she was born when they got the report that King Hamlet had been killed so it's a girl but now we don't have a prince so we're going to pretend she's a boy mm. and then Hamlet King Hamlet comes back and so Hamlet has to struggle with this uh, presented identity mm. and it's like a weird it's not Hamlet like it's an adaptation right. definitely uh but it's a it was fascinating to see like kind of how they addressed that in 1920 yeah um the 20s I are, think, are so fascinating i think sometimes yes. they were more modern than we are <laughs> i totally agree because there's this whole and it's in a silent film and you get this whole yeah. story about gender identity with no words and it was like a this moment for me i was like holy bananas it's it was so much deeper than I thought silent films were capable of being. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even when you think about, you know, I mean, the avant-garde movements of that period, and of course, like Mae West, who was so progressive, her plays are so aggressively yeah. gender positive and gender inclusive and, and her support of the, the, of drag and, and the whole drag ball culture, um, you know, and then the thirties, everything kind of turns, backwards in some way, I guess, because of the depression or what have you. Um, and it takes time to kind of get that modern again in the latter part of the 20th. Especially in art and film, yeah. That's, yeah. wow, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I think one that we haven't touched on yet, that is my first, it was my first experience with Hamlet ever, I think, uh, was Mel Gibson. Oh, Mel Gibson. I feel like I didn't mention it on purpose, <laughs> but my, here uh, he is. Here he is. Uh, my teacher called him Lethal Mel. He told <laughs> us that Mel Gibson can act when he is acting like he does in the Lethal Weapon movies, which is a little wild and a little uh, yep. 
insecure. Um, But that was, so it's funny when I, when I do Shakespeare with my students, because they tend to, I've noticed that they tend to respond to Shakespeare more positively when it's set in, when it's like one of two extremes, when it is set in Elizabethan castle times, or when it's Baz Luhrmann and totally, uh, uh, sense overload so like a peterbrook neutral doesn't work for them it really doesn't work for them even like uh i showed them joss whedon's much ado yeah and they were just kind of eh. anything kenneth branagh they're kind of like eh. it mm. it isn't anything mm-hmm. it isn't modern and it isn't uh period right. so i found that those middle pieces because even david tennant ham hamlet they have the same struggle with right because it's the same neutral ambiguity there yeah, yeah. So I wonder, like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what that means or if it means anything, but I found it to be super interesting. When I was in college um, and I took the like required Shakespeare one, um, I rem- the only activity even that I remember from it with my teaching assistant was we looked at one. In, I don't even remember which play we were doing. It might have been Hamlet, but one in Elizabethan dress and one in um, uh, more of a, a neutral to contemporary sort of look. And the teaching assistant asking us um, which one seems truer to Shakespeare as Shakespeare, and I timidly raised my hand and I said the neutral modern one because in the Elizabethan time, they didn't dress Elizabethan because of the play, they dressed Elizabethan because they lived in Elizabethan times, but everyone else in the class was like, no, 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 the Elizabethan one, that's what Shakespeare is supposed to be. And you forget that it was modern, like his plays were for modern people, I'm just screaming now, uh, yep. <laughs> but his plays were of the time and of their moment, so that, and like when you take those characters, I teach, um, I don't know if you've read Jason Reynolds' Long Way Down. Yeah. Yeah. So I teach that to my juniors mm-hmm. and I taught Hamlet side by side mm-hmm. because it deals with all of the same themes and it's uh, they're both poetry and they're both like gut wrenching when you look at them through the same lens. And it just kind of highlights the fact that this is our this is our Hamlet. Right. Like this right. is where we've gotten right. It's the same play. You right. know, really, it's just how do you how are you dressed when you're in it, you know? Right. And I mean, I think that comes back to kind of the original question of whether we're making Hamlet be about us now or whether Hamlet is always about us because it's somehow universal about the human experience or this potential third possibility that we can take inspiration from what Hamlet did to write something that's in a similar vein, but that's of us right now because of course Shakespeare was an adapter himself. He was borrowing and sourcing from everywhere under the sun to create his plays. And with, you know, sort of with that in mind, then I think that it was so interesting. I mean, maybe going back to my my child of the 90s-ness, 10 Things I Hate About You was so iconic when I was young. Um, And I could see how it hadn't aged well when I looked at it with a class uh, or for a class more recently, that there's something about the way in which he kind of forces her into this relationship that 
isn't maybe as charming and delightful as my young mind read it as, you know, whatever that was 20 years ago or what have you. Yeah, but you. it was Heath Ledger, so. Right. And it was kind we of overlooked the story <laughs> because it was and it was so sort of in the language of that moment that, as you said, we overlooked that Taming of the Shrew is incredibly problematic and just kind of delighted in the material. And I think those are in in many ways, it's sort of two different projects. Right. Do we need to use Shakespeare to speak to now? And if we do, do we let him speak as he was or do we force him to speak as we speak? And then when we do that, what problems arise because these plays were not written for our contemporary mindset. And I think in a lot of ways to go back to Gibson, that I think is one of the things that really goes awry. They take that Oedipal lens so seriously. And I get it. Scholars wrote about it in the 20th century. I get it. Freud. But it's a lot. <laughs> but it's so much. And it takes away for me from anything if I could have made an argument for anything being good about it, I'm like, yeah, but there's going to be that scene with his mom. Like, <laughs> I know it's coming. Well, and I think the weird thing with that film for me is that I look at it and I say, it's Mel Gibson and it's Helena Bonham Carter. And it's these people who have had these uh, varied careers uh, yeah. post that. And I watch the David Tennant or Benedict Cumberbatch and I am seeing Hamlet in a way that I don't, see when I watch the Gibson version. Yeah, I agree. Like, I think the actors live outside of it. Yeah. And I think that's partly because they've put themselves in this Elizabethan time. It's not even really this medieval castle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, it probably also speaks to the, the quality of the, the actor coming to the role, what they're bringing to the particular performance. I mean, not to knock Gibson. He gave some great performances yes. before he went mad um as it were went lethal mel yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah that it, it just it doesn't quite it doesn't quite add up for me because again i think it's working too hard to be one of those scholarly interpretations of what hamlet is whereas hamlet on the page already is something that doesn't need all the work that we as academics have done uh, on it over right. the past it 400 years and it's when Hamlet, as a production, starts taking itself too seriously that it just gets wrapped up in its own, you know, butt. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I kept thinking about in anticipation of this. Did you ever watch Hamlet 2? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I love I Hamlet 2. And so when you say taking yourself seriously, right, like that film works because it's that perfect crossroads of exactly how seriously we theater people take quite literally everything and how ridiculous that ultimately is. So funny. Yes. But that's, yeah, it's a whole commentary on theater yes. in general. And it's so much of what I struggle with, uh, with a lot of theater. Um, yeah. And it, I think that, yeah, no, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> because I no, think, I'm just going to go watch Hamlet, too. Um, always. I, I think there's sort of this natural impulse, especially when we adapt, like, that there has to be a meaning. With my musical theater class this past spring, we really got into that thinking about um, adaptations like the West Side Story revival on Broadway or even um, 
uh, uh, Carousel coming back to Broadway or My Fair Lady coming back to Broadway. Like the way Oklahoma, of course, did this as well. Like the way in which they felt like we can't just do those shows. We have to put something on them to make- Romeo and Juliet on the moon! Yeah, to make them relevant to now. And I, I, you know, on the one hand, I will admit when I see a Shakespeare, I am usually more interested in those neutral modernist um, or postmodernist interpretations, but I also see the value in allowing something that is classic or classical to be as it is, as it was, um, that there is some merit to that. I mean, that's what, I, you know, I'm preparing to teach classical theater history in the fall, and that's the question that grounds our work. What does it mean to be classical and kind of interrogating both the positives and negatives of doing that? Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, my last question to you is, what do you, what's your dream Hamlet adaptation? What's your, like, what do you want that you feel like you haven't gotten yet, if there's anything? That's a really, a really great question. Um, and and I, I do think, so probably my favorite two Shakespeare's are the um, vaguely World War I set, Richard III with Ian McKellen. And I saw the, on Broadway, the Patrick Stewart kind of KGB-esque uh, Macbeth or Scottish play, if you're yeah, superstitious yeah. about that being said on your podcast. Um, and I think... I'd love to see Hamlet used in that way. Um, I feel like I've made a great argument over these 20 minutes for not interpreting in this manner. But I think there's a way in which Shakespeare's plays kind of get at these quintessential questions of the crises across time. And I think it's in Hamlet. I mean, it's a revenge tragedy that was such a, an important genre to the time. I think the question of revenge remains, you know, even as we look at the 20th century, and I'm, I'm absolutely a 20th centuryist, um, these kind of, these tropes of, of war and conflict. And seeing what Hamlet would offer us if it were imagined in one of those war zone-like settings, what would that revenge plot be about? We're like, this is, you know, um, Hamlet in 2000 tried to do this. We were all thinking about corporations and commerce and capitalism at that moment. And it put it in that language. And, and like I said, for me in 2000, very effectively. And I think maybe taking up some of what happened between 03 and, and really the contemporary moment um, with the war on terror and, and the crises in the Middle East um, and, and seeing what that story would offer um, in those kinds of conflict-based settings. Yeah, I think that'd be fascinating because it roots it in a time the same way Hamlet 2000 did that feels very, um, it puts it in a time rather than like those vaguely uh, yeah. time ambiguous ones that maybe students don't connect to as well because they're out of time rather yeah. than in a time. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for being here. This is thank my, you. like I said, this is my dream and I'm so happy <laughs> to <laughs> have had someone uh, so knowledgeable to share that with. Thank um, you so much and... for having me. It was a joy talking with you. Awesome. Well, hopefully we'll maybe do more of this in the future. <laughs> awesome. Please do. And listeners, thank you all for being here. And let us know this week, what is your favorite Hamlet film adaptation? What's the best Hamlet you've ever seen? And what are you looking for in your future Hamlets? And uh, thank you again, Kelly. And we'll see you all next week. 